Welcome and thank you for joining us on The Breakthrough Factor, a podcast and YouTube show where your host, Jess Boss, interviews entrepreneurs, athletes, and financial professionals to find out what it takes to break through barriers to health, wealth, and taking ownership of your life. If you're feeling stuck in your career or seeking advice on how to overcome obstacles all the way to building your fitness and finances, this is a show for you. In this episode, I talked with Carl Richards, a highly respected creator, speaker, author, and influencer in the world of finance, about how imposter syndrome, loneliness, shame, and other self-sabotaging feelings can be some of our greatest obstacles, and also about his own personal breakthroughs in those areas on the journey to pursuing an abundant life. Hi, friends, and welcome back to The Breakthrough Factor. My name is Jess Boss, and today's guest is Carl Richards. Carl is a certified financial planner and the creator of the Sketch Guy column, appearing weekly in the New York Times since 2010. Carl has been featured on Marketplace Money, Oprah.com, and Forbes.com. And in addition, Carl has become a frequent keynote speaker at financial planning conferences and visual learning events around the world. His sketches make complex financial concepts easy to understand and serve as the foundation for his two books, The One Page Financial Plan, A Simple Way to Be Smart About Your Money, and The Behavior Gap, Simple Ways to Stop Doing Dumb Things with Money. Welcome, Carl. Jess, thanks so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this for weeks, so it's super exciting to finally be here. Awesome. I have as well, and uh, I've been fortunate enough to find you early in my advisor journey. Mm. And I say fortunate because many of the concepts and conversations that you have simulated through either your drawings or just through questions that you've posed on Twitter have guided me into what I already wanted to feel about financial services was mm. that people matter and mm. finding out what matters to them is a meaningful way to help them get from where they are to where they want to be. And also because you've inspired me to think about things that I didn't think about before. And again, along that same line, it all went back to honoring the person. So I have just mm. absolutely enjoyed knowing you and following you this whole time. Really, really mm. delighted to have you here today. Thank you. Thank so, you. Uh, after saying all those wonderful things about you, uh, <laughs> you know, I know that one of the things that inspired our conversation was a tweet about imposter syndrome. And I actually don't know why you were tagged to speak about imposter syndrome, <clears throat> other than we all respect and love he hearing what you have to say. But I'm curious <clears throat> that maybe there's a little bit more there, and hopefully we can get into that conversation. So one of the things I'll, I usually do is start off with how my guests got into financial services or how financial services grabbed them. So if you'll kick us off with young Carl Richards and how he got into financial services. Yeah, that's a funny story. I, I, um, I look, I was, I was 
kind of clueless um, as I don't know. My I, I I've got two daughters. One daughter that recently graduated from university, and another that's that's in a semester away, and they both don't seem clueless at all. So I. I was going to say, look, I was clueless as you are in university, but I, they don't seem clueless at all. So I don't know what my problem was, but I was an undeclared major, which we all know in the States, you know, means you don't know what you want to do. And I had, I w- had recently been married. Um, my wife and I got married and um, she had grad. Yeah. 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 So she graduated, um, in finance, like right after we got married and I I was still undeclared. So I still had a year or two or, you know, a year and a half, two years left. And she graduated in finance and, and she had a job. Um, you know, I was the low man on the totem pole at a landscaping company. So I like, I was literally digging ditches for a living and undeclared major. So that, like that sort of gives you a sense of where I was at in my life. And I came home one day and my wife had the newspaper open and she was looking in the help wanted section. And, you know, for those of you who can't remember, we used to have these newspapers that opened and, <laughs> and it was like, they'd list jobs in there. And I was like, what are you looking at? Her name's Corey. I was like, Corey, what are you, what are you doing? And she said, I'm looking for jobs. And I said, I, well, you have one. And she said, I know I'm looking for you. Cool. And and this is a, like, this is a true story. I've told it so much that, that and people are like, really? And I'm like, really? She, we, she found a job that we both thought had to do with security guard. Like, like mall cop, you know, bouncer, like, and I, and I was like, well, that sounds really interesting because I could get the graveyard shift so I could still go to school full time, work close to full time. And, um, so I went to apply for it and I remember it, it's funny cause the interview took place in the exact same building that I eventually worked at a big brokerage firm was in the same building. So it was the whole thing was just crazy. I go to interview and they're asking me all these questions about things that I honestly, I'd, I'd, I'd heard of them, but barely, but I didn't know what they were like stocks and bonds and mutual funds. And, and I, I was like, whoa. And I found out that it actually, what the ad said was securities. securities. Right? <laughs> I didn't, and I didn't, I didn't really know. I didn't know the difference. And it tells you a little bit about the applicant pool that day. Cause I made it through the interview. Right. And and then they, it's funny, they came out, they only had one position and there was two of us left and they said, sorry, Carl, we've offered it to him. And this is an actual direct quote. The guy turned to me and said, Hey man, I don't want the job. You take it. <laughs> so like, that was my like triumphant entrance into the securities industry. And I land, that landed me a job at Fidelity Investments at their national call center, which was here in Salt Lake. And, you know, like, and then, and I'll try to wrap this story up a little bit. Um, I, and I think this will help set the groundwork for our future conversation about imposter syndrome and breakthrough stuff. Um, I get to the training room, you know, and we have to train to get our, I don't think we had to get our seven, but our six, our six or our 63 or so, whatever, whatever you had to have to answer the phone on a training floor. And it was in a, room with, I just remember sort of like no windows and, you know, and I was like, oh, we're, we're doing math here. You know, it's like, cause I'm, that's normally, and I like looking back on this, I can now recognize some of the things that have played a big role in my career was like, I'm normally trying to figure out like what's going on. Like that's my, that's like, like there's stuff and I'm trying to sort through almost like I think of it as like a funnel, like 
what is it of this? What is it of this stuff that's going on that actually matters here? So I was like, oh, it feels like to me this is not a jujitsu job. It's not kung fu. It's not self defense. It's not security. It's about math. Okay, I got it. So it was like using calculators, and then right near the end of that training, we hadn't finished yet, um, and some of your listeners will remember this. Netscape went public. And for those of you who don't even know what that means, just like don't even don't even don't even worry about it. We used to have these boxes you'd plug a cord into, and um, and just think of like the internet without any organizing function, Google and or a browser, right? So Netscape goes public. They, if you remember, they originally were priced at like if I remember right, it's like twelve dollars a share. They delayed opening and repriced at twenty four. So before a single trade had been placed, they'd gone from twelve to twenty four, and the demand was so high, they actually came in, and I'm pretty sure there were lights going. Like I, I actually think there were. Like when when call volume got really high at Fidelity, there would be like these red lights. So there's like red lights, like, and they came in the room. They're like, "Hey, we need all of your help on the phones. You're close enough to train." And I remember walking out of that room because at twelve twenty four, it closed at seventy six. Netscape did one day twelve twenty four seventy six. Right. I remember walking out of that room onto the trading floor and being like, "Whoa." Right. Like this is not, as we say, right. This is not Kansas anymore. We're not like, this is not about math. Like whatever's going on here is not math. Right. And that, so I got into the business, the industry, speaking broadly, the industry by accident, but I've stayed really kind of on purpose ever since because of that experience. I didn't make a grand thing of it then, but I now realize I've been trying to make sense of that ever since. Like what was that? And not just not just investments, but you can apply all of that to savings, the purchase of insurance, spending. What was that? Because it's not, turns out it's not about math and it's not even really about money. It's about emotions and behavior. So that's, that's my long winded answer. I, I left Fidelity a year or two later. I went to work for a big brokerage firm, which will go unnamed, but has a bull as its symbols owned by bank now. And loved every minute of my training there, had great experiences. Um, and then at at a certain point, I can't remember how long into it, I left to start my own own RIA firm, solo owned by myself, up until the point I sold it in 2012. At what point in time did you pursue the CFP designation? That's a good question. I just thank you for reminding me. I've been on I've been on this like weird couple of weeks. Our family's been traveling a bit, and my CFP designation needs to be renewed. And it's like <laughs> I, so so I can't. I can't, aren't I supposed to have it behind me so I can just yes, point? I, yes. I don't, I, yeah, isn't that what you're supposed to do? I can't <laughs> remember. But it was early, I don't remember what year it was. It would have been um, 2,095, um, it would have been like early 2000, 2001. Um, While you was, were still And I remember with... when I was at the first brokerage firm is when I went to go get it because they they volunteered to pay for it, but they they made fun of me the whole time. I remember, and it wasn't, this wasn't the one with the bull. I was at a different brokerage firm before. And this was just early on, right? Everybody on the brokerage side of the world was like, well, come on, you don't need your CFP. Come on, come on. But they offered to pay for it. So it's like, wait, you're offered to pay for it, but you're going to make fun of me. But I still, I still, so I got it early on. Um, I, <laughs> that Netscape moment, I'm, I'm sure was, I mean, I'm sure it was full of chaos, but also, full of excitement, full, uh, like what, what, sure. 
like, is there an emotion that when you go back and you think about that moment that really you gravitate towards? Yeah. I, I like the, uh, I don't know that there's an emotion as much as there is just like this sense of energy. Energy. Yeah. Right. Just like, I remember just being like, Whoa, what, what, this is so fascinating. And I mean, early on, I had dreams of being sort of master of the universe trading, you know, stock person. And that got beat out of me with a couple of experiences like infospace.com. Right. Like, and then stumbled upon some of the evidence-based work that was going on early at dimensional dimensional. And so things like there was a bunch of like hype and excitement and things just sort of, as I kind of settled in, I was like, you know, and it turns out it's, you know, what I realized was we thought, and we still think to some degree in this industry, speaking broadly, when I use the word industry, that the job is to find the best investment or the best product and that, that people, but it, it turns out what I learned early in those days and it, it took some kind of repeated experiences. Like, I, I don't know that I'm dumb, but sometimes it takes me time to figure something out was that it's not about the best investment. It's about behavior because we all know, like you can craft the greatest portfolio ever designed and one behavioral mistake, like maybe even a decade, one, but certainly one behavioral mistake every two or three years, and you may as well just have the money in the mattress. And, and most of us, so what I got involved in that like early debate around the best, the best, I went and got my CF, no, no my um, SEMA designation. Mm-hmm. You know, I did a bunch of institutional consulting. I got involved in that, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I thought I was really good at it. And I could go toe to toe with anybody on the investment process. I really felt like, like I knew what I was doing. And yet I was still having these like repeated behavioral problems. And I was like, well, wait, even though I'm really good at this, it almost drove me out of the business because I was like, I'm really good at this. I've got the best training in the world. Outside of a CFA, I had the best training in the world for that. And I still can't seem to figure out this job that people keep telling me is the job, which is find the best, you know, at, at that point for us, it was mainly institutional money managers, right? Find the best, best, best investment. So I, it almost drove me out of the business, which is when I discovered, like discovered, like, when I ran across the research that said it's not just kids from the hills in Utah that have this problem, right? This investment performance versus investor performance problem. And it was early like the Dalbar stuff, which, you know, whatever, we can talk about the methodology problems. But but Morningstar's, I think, replicated that problem enough for us to realize we don't know what the actual number is. We just know it's a problem. Um, right. That we tend we tend to buy high and sell low and repeat until broke. And that's when I was like, whoa, it turns out that other discussion about the best is kind of misdemeanor. Like the felony is these huge behavior mistakes. And I'd much rather solve those. Yeah. And which is great because then you went out and did that. This this has been your story ever since, right? Is the answering for and answering to that question of, I mean, really still, you're still trying to help someone be as successful as possible in building wealth. You just kind of exited that highway and 
got on a different one as a way to approach getting to this end result of helping the investor. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the way I think about that is, is that it's not, I, I want to use the word broadening the definition of wealth. That's certainly true. Like now when I say use of capital or wealth, like I think real financial planning is aligning your use of capital with what is important to you. That's like my definition of Over. real financial planning. Yeah. Right. Like getting those, if those were circles, like getting that as a, most of the time, those are cir- two independent circles, use of capital, what's important to you. And there's a gap. If we can just get those circles overlapped. And the problem is they, they go like, sometimes they're like totally overlapped. Like Christmas Eve one time, I remember like, oh yeah, my use of capital is perfectly aligned. And then the next morning, it's like, who bought all these presents? We blew. Like, you know, the, <laughs> so it's this, it's this never ending like thing. But, but what I realized was if we're going to get people if we just think about the investment problem, if we're going to get people to do something, if we're going to get people to say no to a behavior that feels like if they don't do it, they will die. Because that's like, we have research now that we understand, like it feels like when the market's scary, if I don't act, I am being irresponsible to myself and my family and somebody will die. And we've got herd behavior there. Like you leave the herd, you're going to get killed. There's all these things that it's like, and we're asking people to say no to that behavior, like that instinct that's actually kept us alive as a species. And, and so if we're going to get them to say no to that, we have to help replace that in my mind with like what Stephen Covey always pointed to a much bigger. Yes. And the much bigger. Yes. Can't just be like goal-based financial planning which is awesome because it's like saying oxygen-based breathing. Like, of course, you've got to do goal-based <laughs> financial planning. But there's something deeper there. And I think that that's where we widen that definition of wealth to include, you know, use of capital to include money, time, energy, and attention. And if we can start to get a sense of when we're aligning our money, our use of money, time, energy, and attention with what's important to us. And then we got, sorry, just to go off on this, but we got that other problem is what's even important to us. Right. Like we're so bad at that as humans. How do we know that? All the, yeah. Well, we guess and we experiment and we guess and we experiment and we guess. And, we, and I think the first thing to acknowledge is that we don't know and that it's science, right? Like mimetic desire, the problems around, we're just mimicking creatures. We, from the moment we're born, we don't know what we want. We look to the people around us to see like, oh, that person wants food. Oh, I should probably want that too. And then you layer on that, looking to other people, you layer Instagram on top of it. And now you got a real problem that you actually don't really know what you want. So if we can acknowledge that first and then start trying little experiments around, well, I think I would like to be a ski instructor. Oh, interesting. I went and did it. It wasn't quite, oh, okay, I think. And we've got to start realizing that's like called life. It's not, that's never to be solved. It's not like when I know what I want, I will be happy. So anyway, that's how I think about that, you know, like Netscape to the work now is like, it's all trying to solve the same problem. It turns out it's not a money problem. It's a human problem. And, and we're just trying to figure out how can we interact with money in a way that makes us happy. Right. That's like the end of the story. Yeah. It's for me, it, 
so often I come back to the analogy of of lifting and working out because yeah. there's several things. One, you can never arrive with with your fitness. Right. You you can't ever stop working toward fitness in, in yet and also at the same time there's never this moment where you can say I have all the fitness that I need. And right. so therefore I am going to just have the fitness. It's a constant right. it's just a constant work and right. and a constant honoring of of that work. And then too there's these competing factors inside fitness. And I think that's one of the things that I heard you say was spending money is in competition to saving money. And all both of those are required in order to honor this life of enjoyment, this life that you're enjoying. You have to spend yeah. and you have to save in there and they're, they're in conflict with each other, but you have to do them both the same. Yeah. I look, I love the fitness analogy just because the fitness and especially strength training, actually anything with fitness, but strength training is I've spent a, a lot of time studying and learning and practicing. Um, it's an adaptive, it's a complex adaptive system. And those words are all very intentional. We don't need to spend the time to break them down here. But if you, if you don't know what the difference is between a simplest, a simple, a complicated, so simple, complicated, complex chaos, humans live in a, sometimes in chaos, but most of the time in <laughs> this sort of complicated or com complex system. And it's adaptive because your every time you interact with the system, it changes it. Mm -hmm. So like, I think both fitness and finance are, that, are, are the same way. Like if I go in and lift today, the result of that is going to show up both immediately and over time. And it's going to have to adjust what I thought I was going to do tomorrow. And we all want these little things that could you just tell me exactly? Like, I just want you to tell me what I should do for the next 30 years of my life. I just want you to tell me what I should do for the next six months of my life. And it turns out we don't know. So we're going to try. So, oh, you. And then, then what's even cooler is everyone responds differently. And so me spending like the trip I just took, I just finished like a long, I was, I was gone for 24 days. Um, I could give my balance sheet and income statement to a hundred financial planners and I bet 97 of them would tell me that trip was irresponsible. You know what I mean? Like I should have, I should have, oh, well, and my financial planner didn't tell me that. My financial planner was like, are you kidding me? Your daughter called and said, uh, my, your 23 year old daughter calls and says, you want to go? She wants to spend spring break with you? You say yes. I would do it in a heartbeat over again. Like, but that may be totally irresponsible to somebody else. And that's okay. And so I love that idea of like, yeah, the trade-offs, the spending it's, it's and it. That's why rules of thumb are, are useful, but so dangerous. Like it's why this is so, that's why it's endlessly interesting to me is because it's, it's really complicated. It's simple. It's unique. It's like Tim Maurer says, personal finance is more personal than it is finance, right? All that stuff plays into it. 
I am curious about two things. One, I mentioned it earlier, this whole idea of imposter syndrome. Mm. Again, you speak so intentionally and purposefully about your passion right now that Mm. it would easily seem to anyone that you've never struggled just ever with this being your path and your pursuit and your purpose here. And even, you know, we can refute that one by saying, Hey, you, you actually started off your journey as a ditch digger and a, you know, a no, no, no declared major. I am curious about what you majored in. So we'll have to talk about that, but uh, you know, this whole idea of imposter syndrome ties into your story. And I want to hear about that. And also this idea of when you're working with another human and you haven't lived their story and Mm. you haven't brought someone like them to a successful outcome, that adds another layer to the conflict, I think, that you face with yourself. And so... I know you've worked with people who aren't Carl Richards and that you've helped yeah. them along their path. So talk to us one about, you know, the journey. I want to hear what you just ended up majoring in maybe <laughs> some moments that were important to you along the way and how that translated to some of the people that you work with and how you've had to adapt, even though you haven't lived their experience. Yeah. Oh, such a great question. There's so much to unpack. So like much. I, I, so I'll get this stuff out of the way. Like I majored in finance because that's what my wife, but actually I had a friend, a mentor of mine that I was going to get a degree in marketing or whatever. And, and again, nothing wrong with marketing degrees, but my friend sat me down and said, get something useful. <laughs> so I, and again, I don't I'm not saying he's right. Um, but he was like, fine. If you're going to go through business finance or accounting, right? So you'll have a tool. Right. Like, okay, fine. I actually really enjoyed it. And it's shocking to me now. Cause I think about like, I'm watching my daughter, my oldest daughter is in private equity and she just loves building these huge spreadsheets. And she's so jazzed about the spreadsheets and the spreadsheets and the things. And I, and I was like, wow, I actually used to, I, I, now I, you couldn't pay me enough to do that, but I actually used to like that. So anyway, finance. Um, and then, yeah, I'm, we're going to get to imposter syndrome, right? Yeah, we are. That's not what you're asking about now. Yeah. Okay. So one thing I just want to note about what you said was the guiding of people who aren't you. And, 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 and I'm just thinking about like the work that financial advisors and planners do. And, and there's something really interesting that if we can get our, cause my whole story, it's just, we're, when you live in a complex adaptive environment, you actually can't know what's going to come next. It's actually not possible. So we make up all these stories to make ourselves feel better because we really don't like uncertainty. Yeah. And we think if we have a bunch of stories, then those stories, and, and they, they probably serve a really valid purpose of just a coping mechanism, mm-hmm. but I've been on this journey lately to just un- unwind all the stories and be like, no, it turns out at the end, there's a big pile of uncertainty. Yeah. And the story, the thing that helped me the most, you asked about things that help or people you ran into or lessons you learned. 
I remember being in London. So we, we spent four years in New Zealand kind of on a, on a whim almost like I could work from anywhere. So it, it like, it wasn't a retirement. Like we certainly need the money, but we, we moved to New Zealand, which for what we thought was going to be a year, we end up staying four. at the end of the fourth year. My wife gets into a interior design program in London, which was like not even on the list of things we would have considered eight, six months before we left. Interior design. Right, we, yeah. And, and London, like we just would have never like, when did London come up? Oh, like four months before we moved to London. Like, so then we, we get to London, we're in London and I get there in December of 2020 and we do like a 17, I, I got there just, there's a big firm there organized a 17 stop speaking tour. So all across the UK and near the end of the, like the 15th one, this weird thing starts to happen where people are saying, Hey, maybe we shouldn't have conferences anymore. There's like, people are getting, there's this virus. And, and so like that starts to happen and they're like, Whoa. So we did the last one and then, you know, the virus happens, everything's in lockdown. I'm out on a walk one night in London. I'd go out every night by myself, try to follow the rules, right? I could, you could go out for 60 minutes or whatever, as long as you're by yourself. So I go out every night, I listened to one chapter of Pema Chodron's, um, Pema, Pema Chodron, her book, um, When Things Fall Apart. Mm. It, it most, like literally one of the most life-changing things that have happened to me in the last 10 years. And I knew about Pema's work. I'd been dancing around the edges of it for a while. I go out and I read it. And I, I would, if anybody wants to have this experience, listen to it because she reads it. Mm. I would also suggest you listen to one chapter at a time because it's so brutal in its dismantling of what we thought Hmm. we were living in. So I remember where I was under a street lamp in London at night while raining. You've seen this in the movies, the little cone of light, the rain coming Mm. down, the whole thing, listening to Pema and Pema says, yeah, if you could just put yourself, sorry, if you could put yourself back in, <coughs> sorry, um, back in that moment of April, May, whenever that, you know, like the height, we had no clue what was going to happen. Yeah. And it's, you know, now it's like, oh yeah, cute. It's a little bit like looking back at 2008, 2009, like, oh yeah, fine. Well, no, in the, when we were in it and, and I'm sitting there and Pema says, We've tried a thousand times to tie up all the loose ends and yet the ground is still shifting beneath our feet. And there I was, right? Like mm. six months earlier, we hadn't thought about being in London. You know, two weeks earlier, we didn't know about this thing called a virus. You know, what blah, 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 blah. Like, and, and I was like, I have the thousand spreadsheets. Yeah. Right? You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I can show you all the models. This was not what was going to happen. No one had on their goals in January of 2020, you know, how the even the next four months was going to look, let alone. So if you think, right, we all have it figured out because we've got stories to tell and spreadsheets to build and 30-year Monte Carlo analysis that tells us, 97.238% out to the third decimal place. 
like we we have massive physics envy, right? Like we just want to find the law of gravity right. yeah. that as it relates to humans and their yeah. money. And we don't. And so that was one of the biggest, you asked for a moment, like that, that's the most, I mean, I've had moments like, you know, Ron Lieber at the New York Times, like that, that was life-changing and, and it had nothing to do with me other than just increasing my luck surface area, right? Like I, I, I played in traffic, yeah. but I could have never bet. So anyway, Pema's work, that moment with Pema's work has really helped me realize like, I don't know. And it turns out there's research, right? It turns out that in the academic literature on complexity theory, making decisions in complex adaptive environments, all you can do is get clear about where you are and then solve for the next, the literature says, solve for the next local optimum, yeah. which we would say, take the next step. Yeah. Then when you take the next step, what happens? New information shows up. And when that new, and that information, Michael Kitsis and I argue about this all the time, because Michael will go forever trying to get all the information in the current place, right? Like, and he thinks if, it, and my wife does this too, like, oh no, no, we can research more and more. Well, there gets to be a point where new information won't add any value. And in fact, there's actually a place where it starts to hurt. And so the only way to get new information is move. Right. And when you physically move, you know, this physically, if you just move, you know, like your office, even in the place you've been sitting for the last hour, if you move, new stuff becomes available. Yeah. Then what do we do? Get clear about where we are, solve for the next local optimum. That's the job of a planner, right? Clear about where you are. And, and, and as Pema points out, I think we're at great risk of being sellers of certainty because we, we have all these tools and we have physics envy and we can tell people and we can use Monte Carlo analysis and we can blah, 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 blah. And the best people I know, you know, the most academically rigorous people I know are the ones that are like, yeah, this is the best model we have. And it seems like a reasonable thing to, to base our future decisions based off this model, but we also know it's wrong. We just haven't figured out how yet. We just haven't figured out how yet. Yeah. So anyway, sorry about the long story, but that, no, that's, that's what I came to know. mind. With regards to getting clear about where you are, you actually, I heard in one of your talks, you had mentioned that even that piece of it is challenging yeah. because where we are right now is interwoven with the stories that are happening in that moment, whether they're stories that we're telling ourselves or stories that are being put on us, that that is defining our reality as much as the base principles of the moment, the, the facts, the, the hard evidence. And we all saw that in 2020. Yeah. We all felt that in 2020, but it, it sounds like in that moment for you, that was really very, like if you had to go back with a financial planner and talk about your current reality in that moment of April yeah. 2020, yeah. it would have been 
difficult to come up with where am I right now? Right? Yeah. Yeah. What do you, what would you even say? It's really, what would you even say? I, I've always thought of like, it's so interesting to me that like the things that we think of as the easy part of this work, if we actually understand what we're doing and dive a little deeper, it turns out they're full of, it, it's really actually hard work. And which also means it's value laden. Like there's so mm-hmm. much value. So what, you know, what you're talking about, like, where are you today? We would just in shorthand, we would call that a balance sheet. And we've always thought like, well, balance sheet, that's the easy part because it's totally objective. There's nothing subjective about balance sheet. Like it's just numbers we call, we get a balance, we put it on the thing, we write the thing. Yeah. And it's sort of like the, um, the circle in the Venn diagram of, um, what's important to you. Like, Oh, that's the easy part. All we have to do is write down what's important to you. Well, it turns out there's so much there. So yeah, the balance sheet to me, I just have found, and you've pointed out something I haven't really thought much about, which is awesome because I've been thinking about this for over easily a decade, right? I've been thinking about this one thing, like, where am I for a decade? I mean, Jess, I get, I, I, that word align your use of capital with what's important to you for a decade. I've over probably 20 years, probably two decades. I used to say, align your use of capital with what you say is important to you. And the word say was in there. And I've been thinking about the word say Mm. for more than 10 years. It turns out I don't, actually, I removed the word say, because I don't actually care what you say is important to you. Like I'll, I'll tell you what's currently important to you through your revealed preferences Mm -hmm. called how you're spending your time, energy, Mm -hmm. money, and attention. And then we'll look at that and you'll go, Oh, that's not actually important to me. Mm -hmm. Like, well, actually it is (laughs) right, right now. Mm -hmm. Let's change that. And so I think the balance sheet's the same thing. It's like, yeah, it's, I, hadn't, I hadn't actually thought about the sort of feeling of the balance sheet feeling like loose ground, um, which I think is really, really important and the cool insight. I'd always thought my work around that balance sheet thing was mainly around, like, remember every line item on the balance sheet is also a story. Mm-hmm. And we've all been in those meetings mm-hmm. where the spouses are fighting about, I told you that was a bad idea, or I told you we should have bought twice as much of that, or, and, and we just have to remember that everything that's on a balance sheet, somebody made a decision to put there. And often in a first meeting with a client, we're going to like rip that rug out and tell them how stupid the, all those things are because we've got a better way. And we do that in such a callous way that we, 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 we don't leave any room for people to just sort of like unwind a bit like oh right like we don't leave any room for the argument that happened you know i'm just thinking of somebody (laughs) somebody super close to me that they her husband made a mistake he thought it was a good idea made a mistake it's 20 years later every time money came up yeah every single time which was often in our presence yeah every time she would say, I told you, told I you. told you that was, I told you like 20 years, please. Like it's some, like you made a mistake. Yeah. So we've all been in those meetings. So that's, that's a balance sheet, right? It's not, oh, it's a set of calculations. Yeah. You know what I mean? that, 
that pain that she feels like this is real to her. She's naming off all the things that aren't on that balance sheet because of that decision. Right. Right. When she sees that balance sheet, she sees missing, missing things that she could have had that are not there. And she knows. And yeah, we'll hear them. Yeah. We could have, we did this, this, this. What about the trip? What about if only. Yeah. If he, when he looks at it, he feels shame, right? Shame and blame. Shame and blame. Every time he sees, and it's this hard number. It's this hard number. And it's like people, when they come in and they have decided to get their fitness right, you know, I, I hate, I hate (laughs) standing there while they step on a scale. I hate it. It's my least favorite thing out of everything that I do as a coach is being oh, there so in that moment when they step on a scale, it's the easiest yeah. number to put down on a sheet of paper, but it is yeah. the like for most of them, the worst number to feel. And they'll tell you, right. I haven't, I haven't, I haven't looked at it. I haven't, I haven't stepped on a scale in, in a year or more, you know, yeah. or they don't want to look at the number. They'll let you write it down, but they don't want to look at the number. They don't want to, yeah. they, they don't want to hold the tension along with the opera, like the, what has gotten them to that point along with the opportunity. And to me, this whole imposter syndrome thing, I'm so excited to talk to you about this, is (laughs) being able to hold the tension of two competing ideas. And for me, I felt it first as a coach because I had to coach things like a muscle up and I couldn't do one yet. And so I had to find a way to acknowledge the fact that I don't know how to do one and also acknowledge the fact that I have to still teach it. It's still there. I don't know how to do one, but I also, I'm, I'm as a coach responsible for teaching this class how to get better. And it is taking them from that, you know, getting clear about where they are and helping them find that next, um, you know, local optimum for their muscle up. Everybody in the class is in a different spot. I was, I knew I was very clear with where I was, but it wasn't about me. Right. right? It wasn't about me in that moment. It was about where they were and about what their next local optimum was. And the more I thought about me and considered whether or not I'm at that place, the less it became about them. So it was this whole holding the tension of that well enough to be able to move into a moment with them as the, as the focus of my time and attention. So, so, so good. Yeah. That, that tension piece I think is, is a big part of. Yeah. And just why do we run? Like, cause I, to me, uncertainty, the tension, particularly the idea that you need, that two competing thing, like you are perfect exactly the way you are and you can get better better. and then you, your financial plan is the most amazing thing ever. The calculations are awesome. It's the best plan ever designed ever. And it's wrong, Mm -hmm. right? Like we run from that tension. The same thing is like running from uncertainty. It turns out sometimes I just want to call this reality based financial planning. There's like, (laughs) like, it turns out you can't run from the uncertainty. You can't run from the tension. I mean, you can, mm-hmm. but it, it, so why? It's so interesting to me that we, because think we, we pay for that tension in other areas of our lives. And I'm commingling the uncertainty as well. Like 
You don't go to the movies because you know exactly how it's going to turn out. You certainly don't pick up a new novel because you know exactly. You, you, this is boring. I've heard this story before, right? You don't go. I don't surf every single time, and I'm terrible at it. I'm just trying to get better. But I don't go to the mountains. I don't. I don't. I'm good in the mountains. I'm good on rivers. I don't go whitewater kayaking because I know how it's going to turn out. Mm. I don't go into the mountains because I know. When I leave, I have a really great plan. And we just did this trip. We just did this trip with eight eight guys. We met this part of this trip I did. We met in Catalina. It's a dirtbag trip. I say that with a term, as a term of endearment. I'm just telling you this because everybody's like, oh, so fancy. It was spearfishing and lobster diving, but we slept on the boat. We got rained on. I like I slept in two inches of water at one point. Like it, 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 we made all of our own food. So just to be clear, I don't want to get any emails about how, oh, it must be nice. But we we go and we had a perfect plan for this trip. We and the trip was amazing because it was bioless, so you weren't allowed to nobody knew I organized the trip, so I knew two of us organized the trip, so I knew most people's work, but nobody else did, and you weren't allowed to talk about work. It was a guy's trip. I don't know how it would be for women, because I'm not a woman and I've never had this conversation with a woman about it. But for me and for the other men on this trip, showing up knowing that you couldn't talk about work was super scary. Yeah. Like, what are we gonna talk about? Right? right? So that was the first thing. Day one, and then I'm done with this rant. Day one, we knew where we were going to sleep. When we left land, when we left Long Beach and headed over to Catalina, we knew we had a reservation at a camp spot or a buoy. I can't remember. We either going to sleep on the boat or not. I can't remember what it was because in that single day, where we were going to sleep changed three times. Right? And it was... The reason the trip was so great was because we all gathered around and like, okay, looks like wind's coming in from the north. We thought it was going to be from the south. The swell's a little bit bigger. What are we going to do? Everybody cool. Like, and you had to have that mentality going. So we had to tell people. I was the one that invited people on the trip. So I had to tell people, my, my brothers from the mountains, hey, we're going out to the ocean. Bring that same mentality we've had up there yeah. to there. Yeah. And I tell you, we have a great plan. And I promise you, none of it's going to go according to plan. And the parts when it doesn't go according to plan are going to be the parts you remember. Yep. We, we pay for that. And yet, when we do this planning thing and we talk about money and life, we run from it. And I think that's so fascinating. So I'm trying to flip that switch. Yeah. In other areas of our lives, we call it surprise. We call it mystery. Mm-hmm. Like we, we pay for it. Mm-hmm. And in this area of our lives, we will pay for a, 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 a what do they call safetyism? A, 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 a sense of a false sense of security. Yeah. Even even if we know it's not true, we'll pay for it because we don't want to accept the fact that the ground is shifting beneath our feet. I wonder if that has to do with the messages that we. Yeah, true tell ourselves or that we've been told and that going back to that conversation of the mimetic, um, you know, representation in our life was in the stories that were told to us or, and I I love the, have you read, I'm sure you have the four agreements. Yeah. Yeah. The whole idea of what you've allowed, what you've given permission to, 
to live inside your brain and 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 kicking those messages out. But it's hard to do that if you haven't if you don't have something to replace it with, right? There's, if you kick it out and you don't have anything to replace it with, then it's coming back. You can't. It just can't be avoided. So I yeah. I love and honor your work that you're doing to create this new concept of mystery, surprise, anticipation yeah. of what could happen in money yeah. and in yeah. life instead of, because that's the new, that's the new um, script, right? But it's not one that's told yeah. very often. I haven't seen it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I yeah. All the wisdom tr traditions have been teaching this forever. Yes. When you think of what you think of what, and you and I interacted on this a little bit. You think of what Jesus said about money. And I use the term reckless with deep respect, yes. right? Like I, I'm saying like, we now would point back at that and go, that's reckless. Christ walking around saying, what? Like it, it's dripping with sarcasm almost. Like <laughs> what manner of person would build a barn and then once it's full, build a second one? Come on. Right. You know what I mean? Like just dripping with, and then the lilies of the field, you know, even Solomon with all his glory wasn't as beautiful as the lily. And the lily is not taking any thought about tomorrow. And we, and then uh, um, the parable of the servants, the laborers in the vineyard, you know, the people who showed up at seven and worked till nine. And then those people who showed up at like five and worked for half an hour got paid the same thing. Mm -hmm. That thing is like, that one's one of the most challenging, confronting parables in all of scripture because of most of us, I think, most of people that we would hang out with relate to the people who showed up at seven and stayed till nine. And they're like, dude, what's with the people who were only here for half an hour getting the same money? And I think what Jesus is saying is, yeah, figure it out. Mm -hmm. Deal right? So I, I think there. what's so hard to me is all the wisdom traditions have been saying this forever. Yeah. And what you're saying is true. We're not saying it now. It's yeah. it's 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 reckless. Yeah. It's irresponsible. It's you know it's imprudent to be talking about the mystery of it all. You know what I mean? And yeah. and we need to get to the point. And we all see it. We see it all the time. Like the people. Wait. Oh, it didn't turn out the way I thought. Mm. I waited my whole life. I did this. I did that. I, for what? I, okay. Last, I've got a buddy who says he's retired and he works 80 hours a week. He's got, you know, he's airplane rich, like private jet rich, like more money than he could ever spend. Mm -hmm. He told me that this trip I just took, he said, Oh, sure. Be nice. I wish I could afford that. Mm -hmm. And I can guarantee you our balance sheets are not the same. Like not even one frat, like him, me, like not even yeah. close. And I was like, well, what do you, he was like, yeah, it's, it's almost irresponsible. I'm like, oh, that's super interesting. Tell me why you think, well, you should be focused on building intergenerational wealth. And I was like, for what? <laughs> like, what the hell are you? I was so like offended. Well, it almost, it wasn't, it was more of just sad. Yeah. Right? Like, what are you talking? Like, yeah. I am. 
I just took my 23-year-old daughter for five days surfing by ourselves in Baja. What kind of wealth do you think I just passed on? Right? Like I just took my wife four days. I just spent seven, five days with my brothers jumping into water at night. What? D looking for things with shiny eyes so we could grab them with gosh. spear. Like oh my gosh. <laughs> what kind of wealth is that? Yeah. I should have stayed home to build wealth for my intergenerational wealth. What kind of bull? I so that to me is where I think we have this dilemma. What are we doing? Mm -hmm. What are we even doing? And, and I don't know where the boundary condition is for irresponsible, not responsible. I, I have no idea. I don't think any of us do. I think that's the beauty of this job. So anyway, that's, that's how I see all of that. I don't even know what the question was. But I, that, whatever it was, it was good. Thanks, Jess. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and I don't know that it's, it's for us to qualify a responsible, irresponsible. It's, you know, I don't prefer running. I prefer lifting. Is that responsible yeah. or irresponsible? Neither. It's just a, it's a, it's a preference. It's a, it's a way that yeah. I'm managing my, my fitness. Yeah. yeah. And, but I, but I think you're right. The stories that have been woven into like, yeah, but you could end up under a bridge. Right. You could. You're like, yeah, I could end up under a bridge. I could end up hurt doing CrossFit. I could end up hurt. Yeah. Lifting. Even exactly. I have a torn labrum. I went into the doctor here in park city, Chris Spieler's gym's right next door. Oh, I um, went into the doctor and he's like, let me guess you're mid forties and you've been at CrossFit. I'm like, how do you know? He's like, well, just about once a day. So you're right. Like you could get hurt doing CrossFit. And then I've, we've got people running up and down the street all day long from Chris's gym who have been doing it for 20 years and it's just fine. Yeah. Well, and some of them have probably had surgery. And here's the thing I have, de I have decided for myself but through testing, especially through the COVID that I, I enjoy CrossFit so much that I will keep doing it. I, 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 it. The reason that I am fit is because I have found something that I love so much that I'm willing and wanting to keep doing it. I've, I've built it into my life, not because I feel a, just a compulsion to be fit, right. because I actually right. like it. I enjoy it. And that is what keeps me behaviorally intact with fitness. But you, you figured that out. You didn't know that. I didn't know that. When you started, right? No. You just ran an experiment, solved for the next local optimum, new information right. became available. I tried repeat, running. Repeat, repeat. Running wasn't it, right? Yeah. Um, I tried kettlebells. Kettlebells weren't it. I yeah. tried um, oh, swimming was definitely, that was a very short period of time. But as I'm saying, like, <laughs> these are the things that we allow people to do inside fitness. And there is some, there is some chatter around whether CrossFit's too dangerous. There is some chatter sure. around whether runners are going to have heart attacks early in life because they've run down their heart. I mean, there are always these kind of comfort there for the most part, small voices and the big voices, you know, be fit, be healthy, lift, stay, stay strong in wealth. The, the big voices are the, are the judgmental ones. The big voices are the ones that says, if you do that, you're going to lose. If you do this, you're not going to come out with the outcome that's the most financially stable for generations to come. The bigger voices are the negative ones there mm, chasing you into a different, a different avenue of building fitness or building finance all the time. And probably what you've learned is what I've learned as well. 
is that it's the sustainability. It's the constant in picking a direction, staying, speaking a, a modem of building wealth, staying with that. And that being something that brings you joy because yeah. if not, are you going to continue to do it? Yeah, for sure. That's really beautiful. Yeah. And Amen. In your, I mean, what brings meaning to your wealth is being able to do these trips. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't, yeah. I don't even understand what the, and, and I think, right. Like those have to be careful with these research things. Cause, it, but I think the research is relatively clear that in terms of lasting happiness, it's the experiences with people that we love that will actually matter the most to us. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing that seems to be relatively clear is that at the end of our lives, the things we'll re we will regret will be the things we didn't do, mm -hmm. not the things we did and failed or the things we, you know, it, it's like the trip we didn't take, the, the conversation we didn't have with the child, the, you know, those sorts of things. And so I think in, if, if we know that to be true, and I can, I, at least all the research I've looked at says it's pretty true, then why wouldn't we be helping clients figure out how to spend the money, the time, the energy, and the attention on the thing that's most likely to generate lasting happiness and the thing that's likely to minimize regret? And, and again, that doesn't all within the boundary conditions of we've got to pay the mortgage, you know, like, of course. And, but balancing those things, I think I would, I would rather err. I told my financial planner this. I'm like, I'd rather err. I made this decision like a year ago. Like I want to be reckless. I'd rather err on the side of being called reckless than wake up with a big giant pile of regrets of things that I wish I would have done. And if it doesn't work, whatever, <laughs> you know, 